I'd ask you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage this morning. We're continuing our study of Acts and we're, we're getting close to the end here. We're in Acts chapter 25 uh, this morning and I was planning on going as far as verse 27, but I think I'm actually going to uh, gonna snip it off at verse 22. And, uh, and we'll, get, we'll pick that up next week as we continue with, uh, with chapter 26. So Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 22. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up from Jer- to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one could give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now before some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. They stayed there many days. Festus, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and to be tried there regarding them. When Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. This is the word of the Lord. May write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of scripture, help us, Lord, to see with the eyes of faith. Lord, help us to see Jesus, who was dead, but as Paul testified, was raised from the dead and lives 
forevermore. Lord, help us to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Help us, Lord, to bear testimony to Jesus with the words of our mouths, with the actions of our lives. As the Apostle Paul stands here now for the, the third trial in as many chapters, Lord, we, we, we marvel that, that at the rejection of you by these men, by the Jews and by the Roman authorities. For Lord, we see in the Apostle Paul, as he followed in the footsteps of Christ, we see Christ. And we hear of the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, to, to as those who have, have not witnessed these things with our own eyes, but have seen them with the eyes of faith, that you would help us, Lord, to bear witness of Christ. To do what we could never do on our own, but we know that we can do all things through your Spirit who empowers us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. And please be seated. A baseball catcher and then manager and coach Yogi Berra famously said after his teammates Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris hit back-to-back home runs, it's like deja vu all over again. Wonder very different circumstances, we're experiencing deja vu all over again as this is now the third time that the Apostle Paul has faced trial. Before the Sanhedrin in the pre-trial in chapter 23, before Felix in chapter 24, and now before Festus in chapter 25. And then next week, Lord willing, we will see how Paul stands trial before both Felix and Agrippa in the fourth time. So technically, Paul is before Festus here in the, the second half of this, of this chapter, and then speaks to both of them uh, before in, in chapter 26. We'll see that beginning with the end of chapter 25 next week. But we've experienced deja vu before, before Acts. We've really experienced deja vu because we have seen these things, very parallel things, in Luke's gospel account as we talked about with the children. Remember how Jesus was brought before the high priest, Annas, and then Caiaphas. And then the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who sent him to Herod Antipas, who then sent him back to Pontius Pilate. Jesus stood trial again and again and again. And the verdict of these unjust trials of this was that this man is innocent of the charges that are brought that were brought against him. Yet nonetheless, justice was perverted and Jesus was crucified. Now Luke here is is very intentional in highlighting the similarities and the parallels between the trials of Jesus in Luke and the trials of Paul in Acts, which is really Luke chapter 2, or part 2. Luke is showing us how Paul was following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We saw this even before this happened, when when Paul had had set his face towards Jerusalem, much as Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem with the the final in in Acts chapter, sorry, in Luke Luke chapter 9, 51, and then the final final year of Jesus' ministry, he's, he's always got Jerusalem in view. It's taken a circuitous route, but it's always headed towards Jerusalem. 
And like Jesus, Paul was innocent of the charges made against him. Again and again, it's testified that Paul is innocent. And this repetition points like a spotlight on the importance of what is really taking place here. Paul, in his innocence, is bearing witness to Jesus Christ, who is innocent of all charges. Though he was crucified as a lawbreaker, as a blasphemer, for our lawbreaking and for our blasphemy, Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. His righteousness is demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead, which is really the, the central part of this passage in, in verse 19. But here, as Paul suffers unjustly in these trials, he doesn't just bear witness in his suffering. He bears witness in his words. Paul bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ through direct testimony. This resurrection is, is one of the most central truths of the gospel. And Paul uses his repeated trials to repeatedly bear witness to the resurrection in general, and the resurrection specifically of Jesus Christ. And Luke, in his spirit and power narrative genius, is slowing down the action. He's zeroing in on Paul's part, on this part of Paul's ministry, taking several chapters to describe a relatively brief period of time in great detail, much again as he took several chapters in his gospel account to describe the relatively brief span of time during which Jesus was arrested, tried, crucified, and resurrected. This trial before Festus is going to be followed directly by a trial before, uh, before another king. Before, Fest, before Another trial before Festus and King Herod. So this morning we're going to see in verses 1 to 5 how the Jews bring charges against Paul to Festus. And then verses 6 to 12, we're going to see how Paul stands trial before Festus. And then in verses 13 to 22, how Festus reviews Paul's trial before Herod. And that will continue then next week in, in verses 23 to 27. Last time, remember, we saw a stark contrast between Paul and his accuser and his judge, between Paul and Tertullus and Felix. We're going to see the same thing this week, but now the others are going to fade into the background as the gospel of Jesus Christ moves into center stage. And we'll see it most explicitly of all in the climax in, of the trial in chapter 26. So then first of all, verses 1 to 5, the Jews bring charges against Paul to Festus. Remember that at the end of, of chapter 24, after standing trial before Felix, Paul was left in prison for two years because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor. And we talked about how Felix was an anti-Semite, that he actually hated the Jews, but it was, it was politically expedient for him to attempt to, to mollify them by, by not just letting Paul go. He knew that Paul was innocent, but he kept him in prison out of political expediency because he did not want to create more riots among the Jews, riots which the Romans hated. At the end of the two years, Felix was recalled to Rome because we talked about last week his brutal mishandling of a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he, was, he lost his position as governor and was recalled back to Rome, and if it wasn't for the intervention of his brother Pallas, very, very likely Felix would have been executed. But his successor in the province of Judea was, was Portius Festus. Portius Festus was, was a, as we'll see, a major improvement on Felix, 
We're going to see how how Festus is still a a political animal. We're going to see how he's still motivated by self-preservation at Paul's expense. The historian Josephus presents Festus as as efficient and sensitive to the Jews, far more so than the anti-Semitic Felix was. And we're going to see this in our passage where where Festus acts with with wisdom and with, with swiftness, again, especially compared to Felix. Now, the scriptures don't record this, but the rule of Festus was actually short-lived. He died only two years after taking office. And, and his two successors, also not described in Scripture, are going to be far worse and are going to push events to, to, the, to the breaking point between the Jews. It's going to lead to the rebellion of the Jews against Rome in AD 66, and then four years later to the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in AD 70. But Festus, for his part, tried to keep the peace. He tried to overcome the hostility that, that had grown between the Jews and the Gentiles during the tenure of, of Felix. And wisely, one of the first things that Festus did as governor was only three, day, three days after his arrival in Judea, he traveled from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And he was smart. He knew that in order to keep the peace and security, he needed the support of the Jewish ruling class, which was made up of the Sadducees, who made up a large part of the, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council, religious council. And we're going to see that, that Festus is going to do something very similar in his consultation with Herod Agrippa later in this chapter. And so when Festus arrives in Jerusalem with the express purpose of meeting with these Jewish rulers, the, the chief priests and the, the principal men of the Jews see this as their opportunity. They know that Festus wants them as allies, and they haven't forgotten the Apostle Paul. Two years has done nothing to dissipate their animosity towards Paul. In fact, it looks like their hatred has actually grown. And they had the, the new governor, Festus, right there before him. They, they, they knew that he made a special trip to Jerusalem in order to curry favor with them. But they didn't use this as an opportunity to seek to undo some of the damage that had been done against the Jews and some of the rights that they had lost under Felix. Number one in their mind was what to do about Paul. Felix had sought to do them a favor by keeping Paul in prison, but this is not what they wanted. They wanted Paul dead immediately. This was the priority in their minds. And so the chief priests and the principal men of the city laid their case before Festus against Paul. And they urged Festus as a favor. Notice the same words were used to describe Felix's motivation in leaving Paul in prison. They wanted a favor from Festus that he summon Paul to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Deja vu. Remember, this happened in chapter 23, where where a group of Jews actually plotted to tell then the the tribune, the tribune, uh, that that Lysias, that they wanted to ask, that the the men of the Sanhedrin wanted to ask more questions of Paul. And so they said to these these Sadducee rulers in the, the Sanhedrin, they said, look, tell the Romans that you want to ask more questions of Paul. And when, you, when the Romans bring him down, we're going to be waiting with, with 40 men, we're going to ambush him, and we're going to kill him. 
Remember, it didn't work because in God's providence, Lysias found out about it through Paul's nephew, and Paul sent, or Lysias sent 270 men to, as an armed escort to take Paul safely from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now there it was a group of assassins outside of the head of the Sanhedrin. Now it's the men of the Sanhedrin themselves who are crying out for Paul's blood. They hated Paul's doctrine. They hated Paul's gospel. They hated Paul's Lord so much that they wanted to commit murder. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount that sinful anger is murder in the heart. These men actually plan to do it. Brothers and sisters, be careful not to let a root of bitterness take hold in your heart. You will be shocked by how much it can deceive you and by how far it can take you. But Festus told these Jews that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself would be going there shortly so that they, if they had an issue with Paul, they could then take some of their, their leading men and go with him back to Caesarea and they would hold a trial there. Now, whether Festus smelled a rat or not, I don't know what, what the motivation was. It's possible even that he just wanted to show them that he's not going to take orders, that he's not a lackey to take orders from them. He wanted to be on his terms and his way and his time. But here he protected, inadvertently, very probably inadvertently, protected Paul. There's no sense here that he had heard anything about the previous plot, let alone that he had had the time or even the knowledge to actually sit down and read the report that Lysias had made. He probably had no idea about what had happened in chapter 23. Remember, that was two years prior. Nonetheless, this was God's providential plan to protect Paul. Jesus had promised Paul that he would bear witness in Rome. God's will will be done. As we talked about in the in the Sunday school earlier, this is this is not fatalism. This is not blind faith. This is actually the, the God of the Bible, who is the God of all history, who's bringing all history towards their appointed end. And this is God who we talked about several weeks ago who didn't see Paul just as an instrument in his hands, but who loved Paul. As the bride of Christ. And protected Paul and would continue to protect Paul until Paul's time on earth was done and the Lord would take him to be with him forever. Now verses 6 to 12, Paul stands trial before Festus. Eight to ten days later, Festus went down to Caesarea, and then the very next day, he convened Paul's trial. Unlike Felix, who who dragged his feet and never reached a verdict on Paul, Festus is intent on expediting justice. He took his seat on the the raised judgment seat, which is referred to as the the Rima, sorry, the Bema seat. The Bema seat, this is the, we we talk about this term when we talk about the, the Bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ on the last day. And again, Luke's description of the trial may have come from actual transcripts, but, but almost certainly he would have heard the details directly 
from the Apostle Paul himself. And it's also very possible that Luke was there personally because the Romans did allow a, a public gallery in court. So Festus summoned Paul. Like a pack of wolves, snarling and snapping as they encircled their intended prey, the Jews menacingly stood around. They surrounded Paul, bringing many serious charges against him. But they were all charges that could not be proven. Again, there were no witnesses. The wolves had no teeth. Roman law required that the defendant be able to stand before his accusers. Again, the witnesses were absent. This trial should have ended right there as a mistrial. The case should have been closed and Paul should have been released. But he wasn't. The trial did not end, so Paul argued his defense. Simply saying, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. And Paul's defense here shows us that the Jews' charges really boil down to two. One is religious, and one is political. Just like they had before the trial, in the trial before Felix. Again, it's now been two years. They had two years that they were stewing over this. Two years to, to work to, work, to, to, to try to work the system and try to bring substantive charges against Paul, but they couldn't. Could have had 20 years, but they still couldn't do it because they just weren't true. Again, the religious charges that Paul had defiled, defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the precincts and the precincts could not be proven. The Asian Jews who had accused Paul weren't there. And again, even if they were there, they would have perjured themselves and putting themselves at risk then of, of being executed themselves for perjury. It just didn't happen. They had no proof. Now the political charges, if substantiated, could have gotten Paul in hot water with the Romans. Now one commentator suggested that, that Paul was, was saying that there was another king, Jesus. And that's possible because Paul said everywhere that there's another king, Jesus. And the Jews did use this tactic against the disciples in Thessalonica. We saw that in Acts chapter 17. They were all saying they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there was another king, Jesus. But it didn't begin there. It actually began with Jesus. The, the, the Jews had used that same tactic against Jesus in Luke 23. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which was a lie, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. However, I don't think there's any sense here that, that Paul, that they were charging Paul with saying that Christ was a king instead of Caesar. This is, it's just not in the text. I think it more likely that they're simply repeating the charge that they had before Felix, saying that, that Paul, they accused Paul of, of being one who caused rioting, which was a threat to the Pax Romana, which would also be, be seen as a capital crime against Caesar. But Paul simply asserts his innocence. He says, I'm a faithful Jew and a faithful citizen. As Dennis Johnson says, the gospel is not subversive of civil order, even when a judicial system is a confusing mixture of due process, political pressure, and corruption, as Rome's was, or, I might add, as ours is. Luke tells us in verse 9, 
But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before, before me? Now again, we're seeing that Festus was, was better than Felix in some ways, but, but he too is hesitant to give Paul justice. He was motivated by political expediency. He wanted to keep the Jews on side. Remember, this is the same motive that, that led Felix to keep Paul in prison for two years, and it was the same motive that, that led Pilate to crucify Jesus. But Paul replied, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. If there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now Paul here is subtly charging Festus with injustice. He's saying, Festus, you know that he didn't do this. So you can't hand me over to them. Because Paul knew that to be handed over to the Jews meant certain death. That he, probably, he knew that he probably wouldn't even make it to Jerusalem before he was dead. This left Paul with no other choice than to appeal to Caesar. Now the citizens' right to appeal to Caesar, the Roman citizens' right to appeal to Caesar before a judgment had been reached was, was ensconced in Roman law. It was known as the provocatio, literally a calling upon the name. But Paul didn't ultimately call upon the name of Caesar. Paul ultimately, as we know, called upon another name. And so do we. Paul was not afraid to die, but he did not want to suffer or die needlessly. And we saw something very similar when, his, when he appealed to his Roman citizenship to avoid getting scourged. Now, Paul, very likely, when, when, when Jesus had promised him that he would bear testimony of him in Rome as he, in, it did, as he did in Jerusalem, very likely he was not thinking that he would do so in chains. Now, Paul's appeal to Caesar becomes the means of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to him. Friends, Paul's hope was not in Caesar, but in Christ. That's a good thing for many reasons. For one, the Caesar that Paul appealed to was Nero. And if your ultimate hope for justice is from the state, you'll be sorely disappointed. Now we all know how wicked and brutal Nero would become before long, and Paul would experience that brutality. But here, in the early part of Nero's reign, Nero was actually known for his moderation and for justice. This was largely due to the, benef the, uh, the benevolent influence of Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, who was actually Nero's primary advisor. And so a, a few years later, don't know whether, whether Nero went insane or, or was demon-possessed or, or whatever it was, but there was a switch with Nero, and, and he rapidly turned against the church, and very likely he set a big part of Rome on fire, and when it burned, he blamed the Christians for it. And then he committed suicide. But at this point, 
Nero was, was still had a, a, a reputation for, for being fair and judicious. So Festus conferred with his advisory council. It was, the council was likely made up of, of Roman citizens and military officers and, and officials who attended the governor and also would have included those who were expert in Roman law. Festus returned and answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now think about this from, from Festus's position. Festus thought that this would benefit him politically. This would get him, it would get Paul out of his hair. And it would do so without unduly offending the Jews. And without unduly offending Roman justice. So in a sense, figuratively, he could wash his hands of Paul. But as we're going to see, it would actually cause another problem for Festus. For now, though, Roman law has been used in God's providence to protect Paul. So finally, in verses 13 to 22, Festus reviews Paul's trial before Herod. Some days later, we're told that Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea to pay respect to Festus. This was was normally, this was a, was a normal practice of what would be done when a new governor came and, and took over in the region. The Agrippa who is in question here is Herod Agrippa II, whose dates are approximately AD 27 to 100. His Roman name was Marcus Julius Agrippa, and he was the very last ruler in the, the famous, or the infamous line of the Herods. He's the only surviving son of Herod Agrippa, whose martyrdom of James, the brother of John, and his, his pride and his agonizing death are recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. His uncle was Herod Antipas, who had, in a sense, tried Jesus. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who had slaughtered the baby boys in, Je in Bethlehem some 60 years earlier in an attempt to kill Jesus. So it's quite the line that he comes from. Agrippa was raised in Rome in the court of Emperor Claudius, and he had great favor upon Agrippa. And so he had a lot of, of a political advantage. Bernice, presented here as though she was his queen, was actually his sister. Remember, she's also the sister of Drusilla, the wife of the previous governor, Felix, who we met last week. And it was commonly known that Agrippa and Bernice were in an incestuous relationship. That she was his sister. And that they were in relations together and, and that relationship was looked upon with disdain even in the, the debauched Roman culture. Now Bernice would, would eventually enter into an, an adulterous relationship with Titus, the Roman general who was responsible for the, direction, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and would himself become Caesar. But he'd leave her behind because he didn't want to cause an issue by, by marrying a Jewish woman. So just stop and think. These are, these are the kinds of people who are presuming to sit in judgment of the Apostle Paul. I think we see something similar in our own culture when, when you try to, to talk to somebody about the gospel. 
And they, they reject you. That this, the people who are choosing their sin instead of God are passing judgment on you, the child of God. As we talked about last week, when you know you're standing before, before God in His court, you're not worried about the court of human opinion. And so Paul here was free of concern over, over this legal court or what they thought of him. He knew why he was there. He was there to bear witness of Jesus Christ. So we're told that Agrippa and Bernice were with Festus for many days and that Festus explained the situation with Paul. And we'll see this next week that Festus hoped that as an expert on Jewish law and Jewish customs that Agrippa could provide some insights into Paul's case. Before we sent the report, sent Paul with the report on to Caesar. And this is this again highlights what we see as a as a problem that he created for himself. Because if he knew that there really the Jews didn't have a court, a, a case against him in court, and he knew that he'd done nothing according to Roman law, and that he went and, and sent him, sent Paul then to Caesar Nero and wasted his time, he would have looked incompetent. So he had to try to find a way to save face. So, and so he, he enlisted the help of Agrippa. But notice as we continue here, that as, as Paul, or so rather as, as Festus explains to Agrippa what's taken place, he explains that the, the chief priests and the elders, the, again the Sadducean element of the, of the Sanhedrin, laid out their case against Paul and asked for a sentence of condemnation. And, and But but here he says that although they, there was no evidence and it was, they had no witnesses and, and so Paul, or Festus again rather, is presenting himself as the upholder of Roman law. He's really trying to put himself in the best possible light. He says, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So he says that the next day he brought Paul forward. Again, putting himself in the, in the best light, contrary to Felix. And he's implying here that, that Felix did the wrong thing and dragging his heels, but he said, no, but I did the right thing. I brought Paul up the very next day. Then verse 18. When his accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Again, he seems to be passing the buck here. He's now blaming the, these Jewish leaders for not having a good case against Paul. And this parallels Acts, Acts 23-29 where Claudius Lysias judged that Paul did nothing deserving death or imprisonment. They found no cause for charges against Paul. We'll see next week how Festus is going to assert Paul's innocence again in verse 25, but he doesn't have the guts to stand up and say that Paul is innocent before the Jews. Again, because of political expediency. But the core issue, as Felix rightly understood, is verse 19. That there were certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, the term that is used here to, to describe religion might possibly be, be a, a disparaging 
remark that, that remark that could refer to, to superstition. But the key point here is about Jesus, who is dead, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Okay, this is the central verse in the passage. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is mentioned again, although this time, notice that Luke does not record Paul's actual words. Festus is now relaying Paul's witness. He says, Paul claims that Jesus has died and has now been raised from the dead. So here we're seeing Paul not only as a faithful Jew and a faithful citizen, but also as a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of Paul's apostolic ministry, as was prophesied in Acts 9.15, that Paul was a chosen instrument of mine, says Jesus, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It's the fulfillment of the apostolic ministry in general from Luke 23.12. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And again, we saw this last week as well. This is the fulfillment of the apostolic ministry, which is really the, the central and unifying verse of all of Acts. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You've been my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And notice here that the promise to the apostles, and that includes Paul, even though he wasn't there yet at that time, is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That was fulfilled in, in Pentecost when the power is poured out on, on not just leaders in the church, but over the whole church. And then you'll be my witnesses. So we're talking about this. Actually, Daryl mentioned this when we're at prayer at the hospital on Tuesday. This is not Paul acting on his own strength here. This is Paul acting in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know what Paul was like without the Holy Spirit. We saw that in, in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 and the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of the church, but now in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is now building the church. Rather, Jesus Christ is continuing to build the church through Paul in the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, this message in this passage is not about pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and dare to be a Paul. This is about relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to bear witness for Jesus Christ in every and any situation that you, according to God's providence, find yourself. And again, this is a theme. We've seen this now repeatedly. And I know that, that you have seen this in your own life. I have seen this in my own life. Times when, when trying to, to rely on our own strength, that, that we... We, we chicken out. We're like Peter before a slave girl and we're, we deny Christ in our words or our actions. But I trust you can also bear witness and give testimony to times that you have boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ in difficult circumstances, in, things that, that, in times that you could never do it. And guess what? You could never do it. I can never do it. 
if I'm saying anything that makes sense here and lines up with the word of God, this is the power of the Holy Spirit. You know my testimony. I was a babbling fool in a psychiatric hospital, not able to make a sentence. So if I say anything that even makes sense, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. If you say anything that makes sense, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Anything that you or I say that lines up with the Word of God, it is the power of God. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is continuing to build His church through you and me in the power of His Holy Spirit. This is here in God's Word again and again and again and again as an example for us that we might learn to rely on the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul relied on. Again, Paul is not acting his own strength. This is the power of the Holy Spirit within him. And the implication here, and it's true, is that Rome is not in a position to judge on this. This is a religious matter, not a legal one. This would have been unintelligible to Romans who denied that there's any resurrection. They thought you're dead and that's it, it's over. And Festus says he was at a loss as to how to answer, so, so he asked Paul if Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem, conveniently leaving the part out about wanting to, to do the Jews a favor. Again, putting himself forward in the best light possible. Festus here says that Paul appealed to be kept in custody for Caesar's decision, but again, this, is, this, is, this isn't true. Paul didn't appeal to be kept in custody. He simply appealed to Caesar. Again, Festus is, is self-serving. But now having been briefed, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Like his uncle, Herod Antipas was curious about Jesus. Herod Agrippa was curious about Paul. So Festus said, tomorrow you will hear him. So as we draw to a close here, we see that Paul appeared before Festus' judgment seat. As we saw last week, before Felix's justice seat, and got no justice. And as we look ahead, Paul is going to appear before Nero's judgment seat. This is not re recorded for us, but we know from 2 Timothy that he would be executed, that he got no justice from Nero either. But we know that we all must appear before the justice, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 And that before Jesus Christ, we will get justice because Jesus Christ got injustice. We will get the, 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 the just deserts of Jesus Christ that as he was the sinless son of God, as he perfectly obeyed God as he loved God as Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength with everything that was in him. 
but received the injustice of the cross as the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus in our place. The justice of God has been poured out on, the in, on in a sense, the injustice because he did nothing wrong. But we receive forgiveness. We receive adoption. We receive life in Jesus Christ. We, dis, we receive what he deserved. And for the Christian, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ is not a moment for fear, but of faith. For those who are looking to Jesus Christ and trusting in him and him alone, this is not a moment, a moment of fear, but of faith. It's not a motive of condemnation, but of confidence. Because we are judged not guilty before the Holy God. Because we are judged righteous before the Holy God. Paul here had implemented the provocatio in, in calling upon Caesar. Calling upon the name of Caesar but we call upon another name. We call upon the name of the Lord. And we know that we will receive Christ's justice before his judgment seat. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we look around and we, we see injustice, we see this especially perpetrated against our brothers and sisters who are who are beaten, tortured, incarcerated, and killed before human courts. As we look and we see relatively small, but injustices nonetheless in our, our own lives as we are called sinners and lawbreakers because we trust in you. as we are called wicked because we believe in your morality, not the world's morality, as we are increasingly viewed as the problem in our society because we hold to the only solution for our society, being repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, it is so easy to, to focus on the injustices that we receive and to take our eyes off of you and to focus on ourselves and our circumstances. Lord, I pray, Heavenly Father, you would help us to see that, that it is before your court, the court, the only court that really matters, the court of the holy, omniscient, omnipotent God. Before your court, we are counted as righteous. Because your son, our Savior Jesus Christ, was counted as unrighteous in our place and suffered and died in our place. But we know, Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul testified that it was impossible for death to hold you, that you were raised from the grave victorious over sin and death and hell, and that your righteousness was vindicated and you received 
justice as you rose from the grave and as you have now ascended to the right hand of God and now are interceding before us at the throne of God. And we know, Lord Jesus, that one day you return to take us to be with you forever. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to live our lives focused on that. To focus on who you are and who we are before you in Christ Jesus our Lord, and our Savior. We pray in this holy name. Amen.